ha ha ha, ho ho ho, and a couple of tra-la-las. That's how we laugh the day away here at the Merry Old Disenfranchised Podcast. We're that podcast all about those franchises of one, those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film. I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy, and joining me as always, a really real and good and true podcast co-host, it's my good friend Brett Wright. Hey, Brett. Hello, Stephen. How are we doing today, ma'am? Uh, I'm doing okay. I was doing better before I watched this movie. Wow. Coming out of the gate hot. A little bit, because this movie made me angry. Why? Well, I, I guess I guess we should we should start talking about why we're here today, Brett. See, because here's the first of all, there are two things that are happening today. First of all, happy Cinco de Mayo, everybody. Um, I hope you enjoy your tacos and your margaritas uh, because, you know, today is the day that we appropriate Mexican culture or at least what we perceive as Mexican culture. So enjoy that. Um, but secondly, it is also the eve, Brett, of the release of a film that. Honestly, uh, we have been waiting for for nine years, whether we knew it or not. It is Sam Raimi's triumphant return to filmmaking. Um, Tomorrow, the new Doctor Strange film directed by the great Sam Raimi comes out in theaters Um, after nine years. It's been nine years since his last film, Brett. Um, And that's too long, quite frankly. And I would agree. Why, what was his last movie? It wasn't Drag Me to Hell. Did he do something in between? He did do something in between. In fact, it's the movie we're covering today, Brett. Oh, really? I didn't exactly pin when this movie came out. I thought it came out before that. Nope. This movie came out in 2013, and it is called, Brett? <laughs> Oz the Great and Powerful. That's right. 2013's Oz the Great and Powerful, directed by the great Sam Raimi. With a screenplay by Mitchell Kapner and David uh, Lindsay Abere, uh, and starring oof, James Franco, Michelle Williams, Rachel Weiss, Mila Kunis, Zach Braff, Bill Cobbs, Joey King, Tony Cox, um, and many, many others, including Stephen R. Hart, Bruce Campbell, uh, Ted Raimi, uh, and Martin Kleba, among others. Uh, what a cast, Brett. What a picture. Seriously, if you had told me this came out after Drag Me to Hell, I'd call you a liar. Uh, right? I, just, I don't. This doesn't. That doesn't sound right. But it is because it is. Yeah. Well, here's. Uh, so let's let's get into it because here's we're we are obviously talking about this movie because of the Raimi of it all. Like we are both. You and I are both big fans of Sam Raimi for probably our interests started in different ways, but we're both very big fans of of Sam Raimi, and so. We're just honestly, we're excited to hear him come back as reviews start trickling out as people, uh, critics begin seeing Multiverse of Madness. Um, I think we're excited that it's actually an honest to God Sam Raimi movie um, and not, you know, just some homogenized Marvel uh, factory movie. Um, you know, it's actually got some of his fingerprints on it. At least I'm extremely ecstatic for that. So am I. That's okay. really good to hear. Yeah, you know, I would have loved it either way. I mean, sure. Uh, And you're also a big Doctor Strange fan, too. I am, yeah. The original Doctor Strange movie in my top five MCU films. Apparently a hot take. Pretty wild, man. Pretty wild. So let's look at Sam Raimi. So let's actually, let's let's break it down. What is your your exposure to Sam Raimi? When do you kind of first become acclimated to Sam Raimi? Uh, What are your feelings about Sam Raimi? Tell us about Brett Wright's history with Sam Raimi. 
uh, pretty much begins and ends with Evil Dead and all I, things Evil I Dead a, related. I had a feeling. You had a feeling. The audience had a feeling. Fans had a feeling. Look, nobody, everybody knew what I was going to say. Let's I mean, be honest. Brett's going to Brett. He's he's very on brand this episode. It's just what it is. Yeah. And look, it's as ubiquitous as Ghostbusters. Like You know what was going to happen here. Uh, so, yeah, but it started with Evil Dead. Um, and then... And then I probably don't see another Sam Raimi movie after Army of Darkness until Spider-Man. I mean, that that tracks, honestly. Now, now I say that, but I'm pretty sure I saw a simple plan in theaters. What about The Quick and the Dead? I know that's a favorite of both of ours. It is, but I think that came later. Okay. Um, because I didn't know it was a Sam Raimi movie, much like A Simple Plan. Um, I feel like A Simple Plan was a movie that I saw just because because mm-hmm. um, this was it came out during that period where i've mentioned before my dad was getting like free you know movie premiere preview passes yes was doing that side hustle for a while um so i i remember just going to see a simple plan just because hey it's a free movie i'm gonna go with my dad and go see it absolutely why wouldn't um, you and yeah i had no idea it was sam raimi at the time because why would you with simple plan uh I mean, here's the thing in between. So in between Army of Darkness and Spider-Man, he has the quick and the dead, a simple plan for love of the game and the gift Four movies that honestly, I a few of them have some Raimi touches, but a simple plan is probably the least Sam Raimi movie ever. Like I just watched it before we recorded this episode and the camera is like the stillest it's ever been in a Sam Raimi movie. Uh, and according to the most recent episode of, of blank check, like Jim Jax is on set basically trying to keep Raimi from doing any of his Raimi shit um, on that movie. Just, you know, because the studio was apparently afraid that he was going to, you know, go wild with the camera, just go running through the, the snowy woods of Wisconsin with a, with a camera taped to his arm, like he did on evil dead. But um, but no, it's it's basically I think it's his most restrained movie ever. Um, it's also really, really good. It, it is. It, it really is. If you haven't seen Simple Plan, go see it. Uh, so, I mean, it's still even though he's not doing any of his quote unquote Sam Raimi shit, it's still beautifully shot. Yeah, it's still it, beautifully acted. Uh, maybe Billy Bob Thornton's greatest performance ever, maybe. Maybe. And if but although caveat, if you got some anxiety issues, uh maybe don't watch Simple Plan. Maybe not. It's it, it uh David Sims of the Blank Check Podcast calls it a don't do it movie. Uh one of those movies where as soon as the uh the main the main like impetus of the plot kind of enters, you're like, don't do it. Don't just don't. Please don't. And uh, the whole movie and then they do, and then the whole movie is just why did you do that? Oh gosh, you shouldn't have done it. Oh my gosh. And now it like, it's just, it's tense moment after tense moment after tense moment. And it builds so beautifully. Like, and, and then the end is just kind of this big, like simultaneous whiff and a gut punch at the same time. And it's, oh my God, it's, it's beautiful. It's such a great movie. <laughs> yeah. So check, check that out if you can. But, uh, but no, after, you know, after that, uh, after Spider-Man, I don't know if I see anything else until drag me to hell. Just because I'm, you know, I'm gonna be me. And Sam Raimi for me is Evil Dead, Spider Man, and Evil Dead uh, Light. Um. Well, I mean, did you? I mean, because here's the thing. 
Spider-Man, it, his his run goes, it's Army of Darkness, Quick and the Dead, Simple Plan, Love the Game, The Gift, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, Drag Me to Hell. Like those movies are just boom, 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 boom. Drag Me to Hell comes out two years after Spider-Man 3. And then his he does not make a movie until 2013 after Drag Me to Hell when he makes Oz the Great and Powerful, which is where we are. That kind of catches us up on the Raimi of it all. Right, that tracks because he gets so disillusioned after the debacle with Spider-Man 3. He's like, fuck you, I'm going to make another Evil Dead movie, but it's not going to be an Evil Dead movie. But it's still going to kind of rule. <laughs> but it's just still going to rule and it's going to have a little bit of Evil Dead in it. it it's... Honestly, this movie's got a little Evil Dead in it. If I'm being real honest, it kind of, though there is a solid scene at the end of this movie. Yes, just full on Evil Dead. I mean, Rachel Vice pretty much becomes possessed Henrietta at one point. Pretty much, <laughs> with like zoom pans and everything. Everything. Like, here's the thing: there is enough for for as much as this movie is not a great movie and it's not the, it may be one of the worst, if not the worst of Sam Raimi's films at this point, but it's still got enough Raimi shit in it that it's still not a bad time to watch. No, even, and even I'll admit that. I mean, I may have been overselling it a little bit. I didn't hate this movie, but it, sure. it I think to be what, clear, I didn't like this movie. Yeah, no, but I also didn't hate this movie. Don't get it twisted. I did not like this movie, but there's still really, and I'll probably get into this more later. What I, what made me mad about it is the acting and the CGI. Honestly, same. I will, I will also throw a, a a criticism at those, at the script also. Yeah. It's, it's the writing, the acting and the CGI. And, but the thing is the acting shouldn't be the, no, this cast, the acting should not be, in that list of things not to like because of the cast. Mm -hmm. What happened? Uh, and that's, that's kind of it. Like, I don't know. We'll, I think we'll get into it a little bit later. Um, my, my introduction to Sam Raimi, if, if I may. Sure. After you <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> um, my introduction to Sam Raimi is maybe it will come as no surprise. It's Spider-Man. Like that is my introduction to Sam Raimi. I think I had probably seen army of darkness prior to Spider-Man coming out, but I had not actually like, I, I don't think I knew that was Sam Raimi. Like that was not like a cognizant thing. It was just kind of a, Hey, this is a fun movie. And I, I watched it at a buddy's house when we were playing, um, like Star Wars role playing or something. It was kind of on in the background. So, and that's one of the first like horror movies I ever saw was army of darkness. And, uh, I, I remember thinking it was fun. Like there's a lot of like goofy shit going on. I was like, this is kind of fun. Uh, but then I watched it a, uh, like, a uh, probably four or five years ago, just kind of rewatched it. And I was like, this movie's great. Um, and here's the thing. The entire evil dead trilogy is great. Like those movies are wonderful films. Um, but my introduction to Raimi was a hundred percent, uh, Spider-Man. I, I skipped drag me to hell until recently. Cause I was not doing horror movies then, but we owned when I was growing up, if I'm being real honest, this probably was the first Raimi movie I saw. We owned a VHS copy of the quick and the dead because my dad was a big fan of Westerns still is in point of fact. Um, but we owned a VHS copy of the quick and the dead and I would pop that in and watch it maybe 
once every few weeks, maybe once a month, I would pop that in and watch it. And I thought I, I, I did not care for Westerns. I'm still not a huge Western guy, but that one was so different from any other Western. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it's because of Sam Raimi. It's because of those frenetic camera moves and those like bizarre canted angles and those wacky close-ups and zoom pans. And like, it's it, the Raimi of it all is what attracted me to that movie. And also the fact that you've got, you know, fucking Gene Hackman and Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio. And again, I was not a Leo fan when I was a kid, but hot damn, did I not think he was really good in that movie and Sharon Stone and Keith David and Lance Henriksen. And like the list goes on, like that movie slaps so hard like i still love i watched it a, a couple years ago when i did a complete rewatch of everything raimi and kind of filled in a lot of my blind spots and uh holy shit that movie rules still um love quick and the dead that movie slaps so hard yeah i haven't i haven't seen it in a while but i do i'm due for a rewatch but so here's the thing about me and westerns because my grandfather was the same way mm. i don't care for traditional westerns Mm. Uh, I would absolutely blame Quick and the Dead for my love of spaghetti westerns and stylized westerns, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or it's like over the top, you know, shootouts and guys quick draw on each other. And oh, yeah, you know, the the Clint Eastwood of it all. uh, Past and future guests of this podcast, Samuel Dumas, is a huge, huge fan of spaghetti westerns to the extent that he thinks all American made westerns are shit. Well, he's apparently never seen Quick and the Dead, and if he has, he's wrong. So, I—I I mean, I, he definitely. Here's the thing: he would probably, if he were here, he would probably walk that sentence back a little bit. He'd probably qualify that, but but he is he he'll come out of the gate with a really strong opinion and then go, well, I mean, and kind of like walk it back a little bit, um, right. which is fine. I mean, that's you know, is is fine. You you make hyperbolic statements, and then you're like, okay, well, shit, maybe I shouldn't have been quite so hyperbolic. So you know. It's fine. Well, yeah. You know, once somebody starts poking holes and you know your statement, then you can, then you got to walk it back because otherwise you just look like a dick. Right. You there's two things you can do. You can either double down or you can walk it back. And I think honestly, I think walking it back is probably the better move most times. It, it is, yeah. So you know, better rather rather walk it back than double down. Honestly, um, but yeah. So I mean, Sam Raimi, we love him. Um, at this point, I've seen all of his films except for the newest one which I'm hoping to see the weekend that this episode drops because hot damn. I loves me some Sam Raimi. Yeah. I, look, it's, it's the perfect combination. It's like a Reese cup of movie. It's two great tastes. It tastes great together. And, you know, apparently it's like the closest we're, we've gotten so far to an actual MCU horror movie. Uh, so it's Sam Raimi returning to horror, Sam Raimi returning to comic books. Um, I'm excited, man. I could not be more excited for Multiverse of Madness. Maybe the most excited I've been for a Marvel film since Endgame. Yeah, well, you were kind of excited for No Way Home, weren't you? Eh, a little bit. Not as much as you were. You're the, okay. you're the Spider-Man guy. I'm, I'm, I am. Yes, yeah. you're right. Whereas I, I like Spider-Man because Sam Raimi directed Spider-Man. Like, I liked him when I was younger because he was a comic book character. But, you know, the Sam Raimi movies are incredible like i love those sam raimi films they're great yeah but i i implore you to watch a trailer for uh, multiverse of madness look at uh alternate zombie looking dr strange and tell me that he doesn't look like a deadite he he looks very evil ash 
um, yeah. which is the, the first thing I thought of when I saw him. I'm like, holy shit, it's Evil Ash. Oh, no, wait, it's Doctor Strange. Evil Doctor Strange. Uh, Brett, what do we think Bruce Campbell's cameo is going to be? Well, as I, as I mentioned before the recording, I really want it to be the one that they did an April Fool's joke about where they're just traveling through the multiverse and run into Ash. Yeah, uh, that would be great. Um, but because no, Doctor I, Strange I, is looking for the Darkhold and Ash thinks he's looking for the Necronomicon. And yeah, that would be funny. Yeah. Yeah, no, because at at this point, we know that Wanda has it. So why would he go looking for it? So, yeah, we know that's not going to happen. Probably. I don't know. It still might. Fingers crossed. I don't know. Maybe I I don't know if I heard somebody else say this theory or I just thought of it myself. What if they go to a universe where Bruce Campbell actually is Mysterio like he was supposed to be in the original trilogy? That would be fun. Or he is variant Doctor Strange. Also, that would also be good. I mean, I he would definitely pull it off. But here's the thing. Knowing previous Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi movie cameos, he's just going to be a random guy somewhere. It's, he's yeah. not going to be anything significant. I have I have heard that the the word that I have heard is that the Bruce Campbell cameo in Multiverse of Madness does not disappoint. So, well, that's good. This is the part of the show where we just speculate wildly about movies we haven't seen yet. And not only that, we're doing it for an MCU film. We've become an entirely different podcast. We have. Gosh, what is wrong minutes. with us? Fuck. Welcome to talking MCU. <laughs> where uh, we talk about the MCU. I'm your host, Stephen Foxworthy. Um, we're going to talk about the top 25 Easter eggs you missed in the latest episode of Moon Knight. Fuck. I'm out. <laughs> He's, yeah, I'm done. No, thank you, please. Oh, I'm so fucking tired. Um, <laughs> I, I love the MCU, but my God, could you people give it a rest? No, they can't, Brett. Here's the thing. The MCU has like, whether knowingly or not, like cultivated this whole cottage industry of like YouTube videos that literally just exist to dissect and speculate wildly there is a channel on youtube called new rock stars and literally the whole reason that they exist is to speculate about what marvel's going to do based on zero to no like little to no evidence whatsoever like oh here's a thing in this episode of wandavision that must mean mephisto's showing up like really dude really and and here's the thing he kept doubling down as much as the evidence started to like draw away and point in other directions he's like no it's going to be mephisto no it's going to be mephisto and um it, we will never let him forget it yeah we're probably never going to get mephisto because of that guy just because kevin faggy's that spiteful <laughs> well and he plays the long game that's so he's like i can i can wait till eric voss dies that's fine He's like, I got, I got nothing else going on. I can just, I can just sit here until Eric, something happens to Eric Voss. Not that Kevin Feige would ever make anything happen to Eric Voss, mind you. Wait. But he could, he could. He's got Disney money. He's got that fucking Marvel money, buddy. <laughs> they, buddy. Like the, you know, like the mouse don't fuck around. Uh, no, and you don't fuck around with the mouse, or you find out. So, I mean, it could happen. But yeah, like it, it's so obnoxious too. Um. The just the the amount of Marvel content on the Internet, on YouTube specifically, and like those channels get millions of views and thousands of subscribers. Why? Because they just regurgitate whatever Marvel has done most recently. Like it's wild. It's absolutely insane to me. All right. Just people eat it up. Mm -hmm. They do. They love it. Yep. For some reason. And, and you know, I, and look, I, I, I get it. 
Star Wars fans are the same way. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a thing of fandom now. You want to like sit down and speculate because which is mostly Marvel's fault, I think. Is you want to sit down and speculate about what the next thing's going to be? Like, just man, just sit down and enjoy the current thing. And well, and but that's that's Marvel. That is the secret to Marvel's success is they have managed to nothing has. It's like a comic book. Nothing has an ending. It's the constant illusion of change. And this now that they're introducing the multiverse, I think that's going to get worse before it gets better. Is that everything ends up ending in such a way? that you're excited for whatever the next thing is like you can't just enjoy the thing you're watching because they're setting up the next five things because you know feige's got like the marvel summit that happened like last week where they're planning out the next 10 years worth of marvel movies like good lord man calm the fuck down well not just movies it's content it's tv shows it's all sorts of stuff right they got 10 years of interconnected material, which don't get me wrong. I love the fuck out of it. But it's crazy to think that they have that many years planned ahead and will execute all of it flawlessly somehow. Right. Uh, I mean, it's going to it's going to keep working until it doesn't. And for years, we have speculated, you know, critics and things have speculated about when the bubble's going to burst. Because it feels like it could be at any moment now. And it just ain't bursting this bubble. So. I don't know, man. Like I, I, I love the fact that we're getting like some really interesting original films in theaters right now. Things like X and everything everywhere all at once. And, um, the Northman and stuff like that. Like, I, I, I love that we're getting that kind of stuff and that people are actually showing up for that and seeing it. Um, but at the same, by the same token, you know, Dr. Strange is going to come out this weekend and eat everyone else's lunch. And I'm also I'm somewhat okay with that because we're back to a point where it's not just nothing but superhero movies anymore. Like we're we're back to a point where we're getting this diversity. Like the past two months, to me anyway, has been the most diverse I've seen the box office since the pandemic started. Agreed. And I love it. Like, don't get me wrong, I think it's fantastic. Now, a lot of that has been horror movies, and I'm not mad about that, but you know, there that's still one of those kind of like guaranteed to cash in kind of things. Like horror is just kind of one of those genres that people will show up for and you don't have to spend a lot of money to make a lot of money. Um, I mean, that's, that's how Raimi got his start doing horror movies and he's really good at it. Like there are some sincerely horrific moments in this PG movie that we're going to talk about sooner or later. Don't worry. We'll get there. People. Yeah, I mean, like we had to talk about the Doctor Strange of it all. So, you know, naturally that's we talked why, about the MCU. Right. That's why we're doing this. Again, it's Sam Raimi. We're fucking excited about Sam Raimi. And honestly, I think we're more excited about Sam Raimi coming back to movies than we are about talking about Oz the Great and Powerful, if we're being real honest. Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Brett, Oz the Great and Powerful, let's go ahead and pivot here, is a movie based on the L. Frank Baum novel. Um, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, and it's several, several follow-up novels. What is your history with that property? Uh, what do you know about that property? What is your level of familiarity? Um, tell us a little bit about Brett Wright's history with the Wizard of Oz. Uh, mine is probably not much different than most people's. Uh, saw the original film. Mm-hmm. Uh, read the original book. Book. Mm-hmm. I have not read 
really beyond the first one. There's there's a whole series, man. There's a ton, and that, that he hated every single one of them. He didn't want to write anymore past the first one. Uh, but it was is the kids, man. Like more power to him. He hated writing them, but he did it because kids wanted him to. Right. Uh, so you know, good for him. Um, but I think really most of my familiarity, as many millennials might agree, is Return to Oz. Mm, and which is I've seen it one time and I was barely paying attention. Uh, I need to rewatch it. It's on Disney Plus. I need to. I need to dig back into that. You do, because man, just traumatized. Uh, mm-hmm. It's disturbing. Baby Feruza Balk in that one. Yeah, uh, but it's cool because it's is, closer to the books. Is that a potential future episode of this podcast, Return to Oz? Uh, it, I mean, it well, I depends on how much you want to consider it a sequel to the original. I suppose. Um. I mean, but like, kind of like, requel, kind of maybe a little bit. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's real. Like, I recently watched one of those YouTube uh, um, video essays about it, so I, mm-hmm. I got, I got a little bit of context for you beyond that. I yeah, but I don't know. They wanted. I don't know. It, it being a sequel to the original is kind of up in the air. I don't really think they ever. And here's the thing. I don't know that it is because it looks like Disney bought the rights to all the Oz books except the original, maybe. Like, I don't know that it technically is a sequel. We're going to have to do some research, but I would not mind doing it for the podcast at some point. I think that would be fun. I think it would be, too, because it I mean, you know, because there's crap ton of books after Return to Oz, even. Because mm-hmm. I mean, even Return to Oz is like three books in one. Uh, but it cool, is, yeah. The, yeah, the cool thing about um, Return to Oz, though, and just the Oz books in general, is it, my man really like wove politics and his own beliefs into like every single book, even though they were children's books. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you may not know unless you've seen Return to Oz. That that Emerald City, all stolen emerald, just from the trolls. Right. Uh, just rich motherfuckers stole all the emerald, built a giant city, and just gave a big middle finger to the trolls. And was like, fuck you guys. Because mm-hmm. you're less than us. Uh, and we're going to have a big old party and a big old city and all of your harvested emerald. Um, and man, if that doesn't speak to America right now, I don't know what does. Right. And I mean, this movie kind of, I think if this movie had come out maybe three years later, it might have been received a little more, a, l- a little differently. Um, it probably still would have needed a better cast, but I think America probably would have been in a better position to really engage with this movie. Potentially. I mean, you've got a, a charlatan coming to power through, you know, lies and deceit, um, except he doesn't get his comeuppance. And that's, that's kind of what I think America was wanting to see in 2016. Well, he gets his comeuppance in a very like, family friendly way i mean like, it, in a very disney pg movie kind of way yeah he, he gets his comeuppance by and i'll give james franco a little bit of credit here the, the not one, too much though no he doesn't deserve that much he doesn't deserve that much just this tiny tiny little bit um that he actually did some acting in this movie and it was maybe for a couple seconds so don't get it twisted but 
the, the brief moment when he realizes all of his bullshit is the reason that the Wicked Witch of the West exists. Mm-hmm. And that brief moment of realization and sadness that crosses his face. Like, holy shit, James Franco's actually acting right now. It took oh, him oh, long wait, enough. Oh, and it's gone. And it's gone. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, that's really like the only comeuppance he gets. And, you know, he changes for the better. And he's a good man after that. Not greatness. Much better. Goodness. Fucking God, the acting is so bad in this movie. I I would never have expected Michelle Williams, of all people, to turn in a performance this static and wooden. Like, oh my gosh, what is she doing? What is she thinking? I got to imagine that she's just trying to copy the original Glinda and like not doing a good job of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's literally what Mila Kunis is doing for the back half of this movie. Uh-huh. is is kind of trying to channel her own inner Margaret Hamilton, and it does not work. Because, look, much like, the, well, I'll sort of reference the, uh, what was that, the Tom Holland movie that we did recently, the one with the thoughts? <laughs> See, you forgot it too, Chaos Walking. Chaos Walking. You remember there was a, the part that I was like, I'm going to steal that, like the, like the fiery paladin guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to steal that idea. I'm totally going to steal the idea that they completely wasted in this movie of a witch with fire powers that cries tears that leave scars on her cheeks. That is a but badass that, idea that they waste right that away. They are choreographed. That literally all that is is choreographing that she is the one who is the Wicked Witch of the West. That is all that that, that is just like little hints to the audience of who she will one day be. Like because the Wicked Witch had fire powers. She shot, you know, fire at the scarecrow. Toward yep. the end of the movie, uh, water is the thing that ultimately cr- causes her undoing. Like that's all that is is just little little markers, little ways to choreograph for us who this character will will turn into by, by the end of the movie. Right, and the the fire powers, sure, but like the idea of like crying tears that scar her face mm-hmm. is like I'm stealing that idea because you motherfuckers wasted it. Yeah, it's pretty badass. Because as soon as it happens, it's just like, well, now we're going to turn you into a green witch. And those scars are going to go away. You're never going to cry burning tears again. Because your heart is gone. You're you're dead inside now. For um, some reason. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because reasons. Um, I, I And again, I, I as I was watching this movie, I just had the thought, how is it possible to miscast so many roles in a major Hollywood blockbuster because it feels like with maybe the exceptions of Rachel Weiss and Zach Braff, everybody in this movie is miscast. I will also those two are, I will also give, I will also give some credit to Joey King as the China, as the China doll. I think she does a really good job too. Like those, those three performances are probably my favorite in the movie. Every like, but like our three leads, James Franco, Michelle Williams, and Mila Kunis. Um, no, thank you. I and honestly, I think is, is that live action Zach Braff feels just as terribly acted as everything else does. But once it's just his voice, once one, yeah, once we get mocap Zach Braff, mocap Zach Braff is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, maybe one is. of the best Zach Braff performances. Honestly, yeah, I don't, and I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about movies. Is there somebody on set that like helps actors like? Were they just not present? Like, was the same Raimi just the kind of director that's like, I don't know, you guys do your thing. Here's I'm the thing, turn though. The camera around. Here's the thing about Sam Raimi, though, is if you look at his films, 
the acting is usually not an area that's lacking in any of his movies. Um, I mean, we, I mean, we've just named a handful of fantastic Sam Raimi movies where there is not a, a dull performance in the lot, a simple plan, perfect performances across the board, the Spider-Man films, fantastic performances by everyone. Sure. You could probably say an unkind word about one or two members of that cast, but you'd be a jerk except unless you're talking about toe for grace, in which case I might be able to forgive you. <laughs> Brett grimace. Yikes. <laughs> Big damn yikes. Um, but quick in the dead, like those four leads of that movie. Perfect. Perfectly cast in those roles. Like he is not someone who is, like known as like being dismissive of actors. So it honestly kind of makes me wonder how hands-on he was with the actors or if he was more focused on other areas of the filmmaking process. Like I, I wonder how hands-on he was with the actors because it feels like that's not an area that he put a lot of attention into, or at least that's the impression that I get. Maybe there was just too much going on. Like most of this movie shot clearly shot on a green screen. So maybe it was just too much. From what I read, it's a combination of green screen and practical sets. So there are elements like you can tell there are practical sets that have been built and then kind of green screens around them to kind of like fill in the like the background backdrops and things. But like you can tell like the scene when the hot air balloon crashes at the beginning of the movie. Uh, after he arrives in Oz for the first time and kind of comes crawling out, you can tell that that balloon and the water and like the land around it are actually a set like they're there. James Franco is actually walking in a physical location. But then just beyond that, you can tell like there's a green screen kind of draped all the way around like th these are practical sets with some like green screen addendums in the background. Except for when it isn't, and it's incredibly obvious. It is. Like, a lot of the action sequences are are almost pure CGI. Like, anything with the, the flying baboons, which look phenomenal. Uh, the art direction of this movie is insane. It's It looks really, really good. Like, this movie looks incredible. Yeah, with the exception of the, the CGI when it's, like, really bad. Uh, like the, and it's really only those scenes where, like, the most egregious one is that I remember at the beginning when it's it's Mila Kunis and James Franco just walking down mm -hmm. the road, and they're just surrounded by green screen, and you can tell it's green mm -hmm. screen, and they look out of place, and they don't look right. Anytime they're like anyone like goes to pick up the China doll, like apparently there was like a puppet on set that they could interact with. But like it feels like it's very CG, like you can tell you can see the seams in the CGI a little bit when they're like handling the, the China doll. Yeah, the the when the fairy spits water on his face, but there's clearly no water on his face. Right. Like, and why weren't those river fairies biting his crotch? Give the people what they want, Sam Raimi. I feel like maybe he wanted to do that. And they were like, no, Sam, we can't do that. <laughs> Sam, this is a PG movie, you know, for kids. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. No, okay. Fine. That's fine, buddy. But like, we're gonna, but we're gonna cover him in blood at some point, right? Um, and but and and for for all of this movie's flaws, and there there are many. Like, it is unmistakably a Sam Raimi movie. Like, there are so many Raimi touches in this thing that make it interesting to watch, but so many miscast performances that it's not entertaining. Like, I'm interested, but I'm not entertained. 
Yeah, there's plenty of times where I waffled back and forth like, okay, this acting is so bad. I don't know if I want to finish this. But it's immediately followed by like, oh, that's really pretty. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. a really good shot. Okay, I'm going to keep watching this. Like, we even get, like, the Raimi cam, like, the first time the flying baboons attack, we don't actually see them attacking. What we see is the camera, like, racing behind um, Franco and Kunis as they're running down the yellow brick road. Now, that scene looks very, like, the the surroundings look very CGI and very shoddy, but that is some Raimi cam shit of, like, the camera flying through the woods in the Evil Dead movies. Um We've we've referenced the Rachel Vice possessed Henrietta toward the end of the film. Everything with the flying baboons is pure Raimi horror movie. Like, and those baboons are terrifying to look at. Like, they are very scary. I do have some lore questions though, because the the flying monkeys in the original film look more like uh, Zach Braff's character. Mm-hmm. Like, what happened there? Like, what? And and it it almost so. For legal reasons, this is not a prequel to the 1939 Wizard of Oz. Um, Oh, okay. Legally distinct. Correct. So MGM owns the Wizard of Oz, which is, I think, was purchased by Warner Brothers, maybe, because the Wizard of Oz characters show up in like Lego Dimensions and um, Space Jam, A New Legacy and shit like that. So I'm pretty sure that Warner Brothers has the rights to The Wizard of Oz now. So Disney can't just go and say, like, take the designs for the Emerald City or, like, put Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion in shit the way that they were in that movie. But we can allude to the lion and we can kind of wink at the Scarecrow and we can kind of maybe not even mention that there's such a thing as a Tin Man. Um and kind of all at the same time we can make, you know, we can reference the yellow brick road because that's in the books. Like the, the Munchkin land spiral is kind of in the middle of town, but it looks a little different than the one in the movie does. Emerald city is big and green and emeraldy, but it's still not the Emerald city from the film. Like there are differences for, for legal reasons, there are differences between what we're doing here and what they were doing there. If like the horses are one color, like, what are they doing? I don't <laughs> legally distinct. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's not a horse of a different color. It's the horse of the same damn color it was before. What the hell are we doing here, people? Right. Look, we don't want to get sued. <laughs> no, no, we absolutely do not. And and I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is you you have to make these things look close enough that because again those images are iconic. Right. Like the Wizard of Oz is one of the most iconic films of all time for many reasons, for many different people. That movie is a touchstone of American cinema. So which is part of the reason why I think every time someone has attempted to riff on it, the idea is to go in like a completely different direction, like Return of Return to Oz is very different from the 1939 uh, MGM film. Uh, it's It's a very different thing. Um, and then you've got, uh, like wicked wicked is again, another one that kind of goes in this hard left direction where you, and it's another one very similar to this, where you take a lot of the concepts and the ideas and you extrapolate and you 
you know, build lore, kind of bake lore in where there was not lore there before. Um, and you make, um, Elphaba, like the bastard daughter of the, uh, of the, the wizard. And, and, you know, you do all sorts of kind of crazy stuff. And then all of her friends that she meets and kind of tortures, uh, like accidentally creates all of Dorothy's friends. And like, it's this whole other thing. Um, and she defies gravity at one point. (laughs) Ah, yeah. Um, but you know, much higher and in a, in a register that I am incapable of hitting. Um, sure, sure. Um, but then you, and that, but then this movie does a lot of those same kind of things. It's a prequel, but it also borrows a lot from the original. Like you've got that and you were there and you were there and you were there moment where you've got actors from the circus scene at the beginning playing different characters in Oz. Like the little girl in the wheelchair is the same actress that plays the China doll. Uh, Zach Braff is, is Oz's assistant. And then he is his monkey assistant in Oz. Um, Annie is his love interest and then plays Glinda, his other love interest in Oz. Like it's, there's these kind of direct one-to-one correlations, but they only do three of them. And I kind of wish they'd done a couple of more, a couple more just to connect a few more of those dots, I think would have been interesting. There weren't really a whole lot more to connect though. That's, and but I mean, that's that, and that's part of the issue is I think we may, you could have maybe added a couple more things or, drawn a couple more threads but i understand you want to get to the action as quickly as possible and that's that's ultimately kind of where we fall in on this movie is like we're in this and it's black and white It, it they they do for as much as they're not able to reference the original film directly there are so many homages to it like Raimi does the black and white to um to color transition really well but he also pairs it with an aspect ratio change which is maybe my favorite part of the movie like when the thing goes from the four by three academy ratio to the widescreen ratio and it just like starts to slowly push out as we slowly begin to see more and more of oz like it's really well done like it's fantastic yeah it is and it and that's i mean that's because look the audiences aren't surprised by color anymore uh, exactly so you got to do more than just like oh, oh we transitioned to color you mean movies can be in color now oh my god these pictures are not only moving but they're in color say it and so what do they think of next step right up and see this thing what you mean the pictures come off the screen right in my face no three dimensions you say so see the crazy thing about the whole like and you were there stuff like that isn't in the original book, right? Uh, it was, if I recall from the video I watched, it was something they added to the original because they wanted to like ground it in reality mm-hmm. because they didn't think audiences would handle like a fully fantastical film. Sure, because apparently they thought audiences that time were stupid. I mean. They still think audiences are pretty stupid, let's be honest. True. I'm just glad they didn't go all the way with it in this movie, because like then it wouldn't have made any sense. Right. Yeah, it's... But but again, I, and I think that's one of the things that gets handled pretty well in this movie. Like, I like the way that that happens. I like the way that those... And, and we never draw a direct line to it. It's just kind of one of those, like he recognizes that she looks a lot like his girlfriend, Annie. 
And we know that Zach, we know what Zach Braff sounds like. So we know that Zach Braff's playing the monkey and the China doll is, has the, literally the exact same problem that the girl in the wheelchair had. So we can probably extrapolate based on data and say, okay, well that's probably the same actress then that would make sense. Right. And really quick sidebar. Can we uh, talk about my favorite gag site gag in the movie? Uh, the uh, China girl's home is their, their little town. It's called Chinatown. Yeah. <laughs> Which I saw that and I was like, hold on. Like I saw that because here's the thing. I had seen this. I've seen this movie twice before this rewatch and I did not. Rem- I, here's the, I remembered almost none of it. Uh, I remember that Mila Kunis is the Wicked Witch and that's about it. Like, that's about all I remembered um, because I was just like, this movie is kind of forgettable. Um, so I had forgotten that there is an entire town built out of like China, uh, like fine porcelain China. Um, I had no, I had completely forgotten that detail. So I'm like, there's the dark forest, there's Emerald City, and then there's a sign for Chinatown. And I'm like, forget it, Jake. Um <laughs> And I literally like I rewound and I paused and I was like, wait a second, is that? And so I literally before that scene, I Googled Wizard of Oz Chinatown and apparently it's called something else in the book. But there is, in fact, an entire town made of porcelain China in the book as well. Yeah, that's that's the thing that Chinatown in this movie is probably the closest this movie ever gets to even touching the source material like because that, that's the only, it seems like that's the only really fantastical thing. Because if you go watch Return to Oz, they cram so much book references into that movie. And it's just off the wall shit. We're, I mean, we're like, you've, you've got some other stuff. Like you've got the Winkies and the Tinkers and the Munchkins and like all the different peoples of Oz are represented. It's the peoples, sure. But like, no, like an entire town of people made out of China. Right. That's what that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the different human humanoids. Sure. Human You've beings. also got the flying monkeys. But I'm also really they're not that weird though. Let's talk, not, look, I'm talking about giant like scarecrow men with a pumpkin on their head named Jack. I'm talking about guards that can like flip around and have different faces. I'm talking about like a villain villainous witch lady that can like literally pop off her head and put on another one and it changes her personality. Hmm. Like I'm just, I'm talking about weird guys that have long arms with wheels for hands that skate around and chase you. Like it's fucked up shit and flying monkeys are scary, but they're not traumatizing. Well, but, and here's the thing. And I think this is the difference between the 1980s and the, uh, the early 2010s. Um, we're not going out of our way to traumatize children anymore by this by this point in history. Like but, the eighties were like chock full of how can we fuck up kids? Because you look at the movies that were geared toward kids and it's shit like Ghostbusters and Gremlins and Return to Fucking Oz. Like that's some fucked up shit. And Labyrinth um, and Dark Crystal exactly. and Neverending Story. Yep. And keep Goonies. going. <laughs> yep. There was look, was there sure, maybe we should get back to that. I mean, we turned out okay. Wait, <laughs> uh, maybe not. <laughs> Let's rethink this plan. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit. 
but but I mean that and that's that's kind of what I find, you know, like we're not going out of our way to like terrify children. Like there are some scary elements in this, sure. Like there are not one but two scenes where hands come up from behind something and scratch stone. Like you see the one of the flying apes do it at the beginning, and then you see Mila Kunis's character do it at the end. Like two scenes where hands scratch shit. Um like and it's like a jump scare almost. Um like there are some there are some horror elements in here and you can feel the Sam Raimi touches on those. But the goal is not to like mess with kids heads. In fact, they they had to tell him to tone it down and make it less scary because they wanted the PG and PGs are a lot harder to come by now than they were in 1984 when the movie Gremlins somehow managed to get a PG a PG rating. Um and because PG-13 didn't exist, but it's like, what do we do with these movies that are too fucked up to be PG, but not fucked up enough to be rated R? Like, well, what do we do with them? And, and Steven Spielberg's like, hey, I don't know. What if there was a rating in between? And they were like, fuck, you're right, Steven Spielberg. PG-13 it is. And so, well, okay. I have to bring the episode to a screeching halt here really quick. Do you uh, have to? Uh, I kind of do, Stephen, because we're 50 minutes up into this episode and we haven't done the plot in 60 seconds yet. Oh, you noticed that, huh? <laughs> Not the furthest we've gone in an episode without doing the plot in 60. No. Maybe our, maybe the second furthest we've gotten into an episode? Maybe. Without doing maybe. the plot? I mean, um, it's, it's the longest we've gone on an episode where Hope wasn't a guest. We love you, Hope. We love you, Hope. You, you, Hope will be back soon. Don't even worry about it. Hope will be back actually very soon. Sooner than you think, hope will be back. Because hope springs eternal. <laughs> it does. Uh, she does. Uh, she but does. yes. So, uh, but yes, let's do the plot in 60 seconds. Because uh, like Brett said, we are, here's the thing. We might end the episode with the plot in 60. We've said a lot of stuff in this episode. Um, well, yeah, I, honestly, you're probably not going to get much more episode after this. We've said a lot already. We, we've we've said most of the stuff we came to say. Give me a second. Let me uh, retrieve the coin of justice from the pillow upon which it sits. The velvet pillow of justice. While Stephen does that, talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. Peanut is neither a pea nor a nut. Discuss. Brett, I'm getting all the clumps. All right. I have the coin of justice here in my hand. Uh, so for those of you listening to this episode as the first episode of Disenfranchise that you've ever listened to, first of all, why? Uh, but second of all, we do uh, regularly on this show a segment we call the plot in 60 seconds. We usually try to do it toward the beginning, but we got hella distracted, which is kind of a thing that we do. Deep in the context. Deep in the context. So um, we will flip the coin of justice and it will determine which of us, Brett or myself, will uh, recount the plot of 2013's Oz the Great and Powerful in 60 seconds or less. I'm going to give the coin a flip, and Brett will call it in the air. Brett, call it in the air. Heads. And it is heads. Look at that. He's done it. He's done it again. Ladies and gentlemen, the streak is over. How does he keep on doing it? Well, I would say the streak is over, but like... There were like three episodes in a row or like three. There was like a gap in between episodes where I was where we were. I was on two other podcasts where I had to recount the plot in 60 seconds on those two. So, you know, I've done I've done a lot of plot in 60. I think the last three times we've actually done a flip, I've had to do it. So that's probably true. So I am probably due. That's fine. 
Uh, but at any rate, Brett, if you would get 60 seconds on the clock, I will recount the plot of this movie. Hopefully a fan out there, I don't know, is keeping track of just I, I would love to see a spreadsheet. Uh, who's who's won and lost coin flips. That'd be incredible to see. Here's the thing. At some point, I'm going to get like really bored and really depressed, and I'm probably just going to go through our entire back catalog and make that happen. All right. Well, with that in mind, your, <laughs> your uh, 60 seconds starts right now. Uh, there's a circus, and uh, Oscar Diggs is Oz the Great and Powerful. He's a charlatan magician uh, who is a con man, basically. And uh, he uh, like sleeps with every woman in the circus, including the strongman's wife. And so to escape, he climbs in a hot air balloon and flies away. It ends up in Oz, where he is apparently the prof- prophesied wizard who is going to save them from the evil witch. Uh, he encounters Theodore the Good and her evil sister, Evanora, who sick him on the Wicked Witch and tell him to break her uh, wand. But it turns out that the Wicked Witch is actually Glinda the Good, and he's been working for the bad guys the whole time. So he switches sides, and uh, they cobble together a plan based, ma- based mainly in charlatanism. Um, Theodora turns into the Wicked Witch of the West, and her heart becomes cold and dark and dead. Uh, and eventually they drive out the Wicked Witches, and um, they kiss, and the movie's over. And but we don't know if he actually makes it back to America or not. The end. Well, I mean, if, if anything is to be believed, he doesn't. He stays in Oz because the original movie has to happen, but it doesn't because we're legally distinct. Correct. This is, according to Wikipedia, this is a, quote, spiritual prequel, a spiritual prequel. And there was supposed to be a sequel to this movie. In fact, this movie comes out on March 8th, 2013. And the on the 11th of that same month, uh, Disney announces that they are going to be making a sequel to Oz the Great and Powerful called presumably Oz the Great and Powerful 2, which is a shitty name. It should be called Oz the something else, like Oz the Wise or something. Um, That would have been the subtitle probably. I could see that. Yeah. Uh, like but, Oz, Oz to electric boogaloo. Sure. Yeah. That'll work. But what we, what we end up having happen is um, not that. Um, so basically it's kind of one of those things where Sam Raimi doesn't seem particularly interested in making a sequel. Like they ask him, someone asked him about it and he's like, no, it's not really my thing. Like this was the script that I was attracted to. Like this is the story I wanted to tell. I'm not really interested in doing anymore, but I left enough threads there that if there's another director who wants to come along and pick those up, they can, buddy. Um, but uh, that wasn't I don't think that was his his like main thrust or his main focus. Um and he goes on to start like producing and doing other things. Um whereas then by about 5 years later, during the Time's Up Me Too movement, James Franco comes under fire for having uh, inappropriate relationships with his students, um, and which kind of derails his Oscar trajectory. Like he's a favorite for best actor, best director, best picture for the movie The Disaster Artist. Um, that movie ends up getting nominated for none of those prizes because he ends up getting Me Tooed. Um, And he's only very recently kind of come out and spoken out about that, um, mainly so that people stop asking his friends and his family about it, um, like which seems like kind of a shitty reason to to do a lot of that. Um, 
apparently he was supposed to be called to testify in the the Depp Heard trial and didn't have to like because apparently he and Elon Musk were suspected of having affairs with Amber Heard or something. I don't know. Um, it's fucking weird. Anyway, James Franco, probably a creep. Um, and, but again, in, 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 so this, this, it's kind of this weird one, two punch, like critically, this movie got savaged. Like this movie got absolutely bodied by critics, but audiences really seem to like it. Like it kind of cleaned up at the box office. It made, it made more than its budget back at the box office. And then at least that much worldwide as well. Like it does insanely well at the box office to the extent that you're like, well, damn, this should have gotten a sequel. This feels like a recast. Like they just recast James Franco, find a new director and then make a sequel. And I'm surprised they didn't just do that. Right. It it does seem like that's the way you go. But then, I mean, but then you've got the rest of the cast and honestly, they're, they, it doesn't seem like they're too keen on coming back. I mean, you've got actresses, particularly like, Michelle Williams and Rachel Weiss, who are Academy Award nominees, uh, and you're they feel like they're slumming it in this movie. Um, Mila Kunis is just she's just miscast. There's no other way to say it. Like at one point, her character says something like, No, I want him to see me this way. This is who I am now. And I'm like, shut up, Meg, because it was Meg. She was just doing Meg from Family Guy. And I'm just like, shut up, Meg. Like it, it just it didn't feel like the Wicked Witch. She she has no presence that somebody playing the Wicked Witch of the West should have. There's mm-hmm. No presence there. There's no weight to anything she's saying. It, it feels t- very hollow. It's it's all it's all in the makeup. It's all in the prosthetics, and they look good. Don't get me wrong. She looks good in the prosthetics, but there's no performance behind it to really back it up. Michelle Williams is insanely stiff and incredibly wooden. Like, and again, maybe you're right. Maybe she is just trying to to do her best Billy Burke impression. And is it Billy Burke? Now I'm, I say that and now I'm not sure. And I don't want the internet to come after me. Not that too many people on the internet really engage with this show, but. I mean, I'm, they might, and we just never get any criticism. I mean, maybe, maybe we're just beyond, beyond reproach, Brett. Yeah. Maybe we're just that good that nobody comes after us. Let's be honest. That's not true. Um, Billy Burke. It is Billy Burke. I did. I did have that right. But like, maybe she, maybe she is just trying to do her best Billy Burke, but here's the thing. Even Billy Burke had like a, a bubbliness about her. No, no pun intended. She came down in a bubble, Doug. Grow up, bro. Grow up. You're going to look at me and tell me that I'm wrong. And what was her sister? A princess. Educate yourself, Brett. Educate (laughs) yourself. (laughs) Um, It was bound to happen. I I actually did uh, take a photo of my my TV last night as I was watching the scene where Glinda shows up in the bubble for the first time. And I did text it to you with the caption. She came down in a bubble, Doug. So that was fun. This is a good time. I had was, a laugh. That was a, a good, good laugh. That was a good joke. We 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 had a good time there. Um, but like there's there's some bubbliness to Billy Burke in her performance. Like, are you a good witch or a bad witch? Like there's a there's a level of theatricality that's just not there with Michelle Williams. So the the idea that maybe she's doing a Billy Burke impression still kind of falls flat because the performance falls flat. And Billy Burke's performance is not flat. Yeah, it really feels like the only thing she's trying to do Billy Burke-wise is the voice. Mm-hmm. But like, and it, it's just like she, the character itself is like very passive, like almost like a, a non, a non-entity of a character, which is not a compelling character arc. 
really like at all. Um, and I mean, there's, there's the cool witch fight at the end, but beyond that, like what does Glinda do in this movie? Encourage Oz to be the wizard, I guess. So like, really this entire movie is just, it's just kind of like the only person that has an arc. You could maybe argue that Mila Kunis's character has an arc. I mean, th- those are the two but. leads of the movie. It's Mila Kunis and it's it's James Franco. It's Oz and the Wicked Witch. Like those are your main characters for good or ill. Yeah, and like nobody else has an arc at all. No, not really. No. Everyone else is just fairly static as a character. Yeah, they're they are just there to help their respective main characters and push them forward in the plot. Exactly. It's it's yeah, it's it's purely plot focused. Um which is again why I kind of I'm just the the story just kind of is kind of a non entity in this movie like it's not anything that I'm super entertained by it just it, it it's very by the numbers but you know what it reminded me of as I was watching this I I couldn't help but draw the comparison to Nutcracker in the Four Realms in the previous episode of this podcast um, because it's about this this character from the real world who is ushered into this fantastical reality where they encounter these interesting and bizarre people and ultimately end up falling bass backwards into saving the world. Uh, okay. Hold on. Uh, let's walk that back a little bit. Uh, Cause you've also just described labyrinth, never ending story, uh, dark crystal a little bit, but here's the um, thing. Like all of those stories share a common thread though. And, and I, I brought this up on our nutcracker episode because there's something in those stories where there's like a usually it's a young girl who goes into this fantastical world and encounters all of these very strange and weird things. Like I like like Alice in Wonderland is one of my favorite stories of all time. Like I love that kind of story and I love that that contrivance. I think two issues here. One, the female protagonist of those films is replaced by James Franco, which there are issues there mm, that I have. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but, but also secondly is like a lot of the wonder feels like it's sucked out of the thing. Like there are moments when it pokes through, but by and large, it feels very devoid of, and honestly, I kind of felt that way about Nutcracker too. Like all the things that were supposed to be magical and wondrous and and beautiful were kind of like, eh, that's kind of cool, I guess. And that's what I'm going to walk back. I'm not going to stand here and take this Nutcracker slander. Uh, you were much back, more positive on Nutcracker than I was, though. Go go back and watch or listen to that episode, and then go watch the movie, honestly, because it's it's great. It really reminded me of those movies. Don't grimace at me. The movie was really great. Because I'll it reminds me if I damn well please, sir. It, it reminded me of those older movies, like like the eighties Henson movies and Alice in Wonderland, and and but you, I mean you're completely right about the fantasy is sucked out of this movie. I don't know what you're talking about with the fantasy sucked out of Nutcracker in the Four Realms. That was Again, full of it. If you recall, you were much more positive on that movie than I was. I did sure, not. But I mean, I mean, I understand. I get that, but like. And at the time, I understood your criticisms. I don't think we really argued much on that episode. I think that but was that, before we argued a lot, honestly. That was our first year. We didn't that argue was, much then. But that was because I don't think you ever said there wasn't any fantasy in that movie. Uh, I don't know. It it All the fantasy felt a bit – it fell a bit flat for me. And, 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 it, and again, I think a lot of it is the re- over-reliance on CG. Like, again, you and I are big proponents of – practical effects 
and and things being done in camera practically. And I think when you tend to over rely on CG, and honestly, I felt this way about the CG environment since the Star Wars prequels, it doesn't feel real. And if it doesn't feel real, I have a hard time investing because I don't feel like there are any stakes because all of this just feels fake. It looks fake. It feels fake. Like I'm not as invested in the fantasy of, of these types of movies because it's all fake shit. It might look pretty and there may be some moments when it looks really good, but I'm not, it's, it's not something that I'm like, Ooh, ah, like even Pandora, I was kind of like, eh, this is fine. I agree with that statement overall. I just, I don't know. For some reason, I didn't see it in Nutcracker as much as you did, I guess. Because obviously, I, I mean, I noticed it in this movie, in, in, like all over the place. Mm. But, and it definitely soured me on the movie, especially the shots that happen early on, where I'm already kind of like, I don't know about this. Yeah. And the CGI is making it worse. Yeah, I, I'm I'm right with you on that. Like it, it doesn't help and again there are moments where it's really cool like the scene where they're flying on the in the bubbles past the emeralds and the emerald ruby flowers are like opening like that looks really cool like i really like the look of that i love the scene where they're in the dark forest and those plants with the glowing eyes start like snapping at them like that reminds me of the scene from spider-man 2 with doc ock's tentacles when they come to life for the first time and start attacking all the doctors which is pure raimi like that 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 sequence is just pure unadulterated Raimi. And it's another one of those sequences in this movie where I'm like, fucking Raimi, go for it, buddy. Like I'm having a great time with that. But then, you know, it's followed by, you know, a bunch of dead performances. Did those crows just say we were going to die? You know, all, all that kind of stuff. And you're like, eh, not as good. Yeah. I mean, imagine my disappointment when they're walking into a dark forest and there's some talking crows and I'm perking up going, all right, I'm in. Is Sam Raimi, we're in a dark forest, there's talking crows. Please tell me more. Exactly. <laughs> say less, as the kids say. Say less. Uh, and then it's uh, ultimately... Sucks. They do say less, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, yeah. Which is to say they say nothing else. Um, crows, by the way, a, a visual motif in A Simple Plan also. So another kind of thing that Raimi is kind of borrowing from his back catalog for this movie. He's like kind it, of referencing all sorts of things. It feels like he's pulling out his bag of tricks. Like the scene with the hot air balloon in the tornado feels very much like Ash in the cabin from Evil Dead 2, like where the cabin's kind of like coming alive and attacking him. Like when you get like the fence kind of like flying in through and like all the the, the spikes coming like inches from hitting his face in every direction. Like that feels very Evil Dead 2 to me. Um, but then it ends and then we're off to the next thing and it's it's less fun. Like it doesn't it it hits those moments and then just breezes right past them like they never happened. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's another thing I didn't really realize about this movie is nothing really gets to breeze. Mm -hmm. You are kind of going at a pretty breakneck pace. And it still feels about a half an hour too long. Yeah, this is another one. I've said this a lot recently, I've noticed. that. Yeah. Why is this movie as long as it is? It doesn't it's, need to be. It's two hours and ten minutes, and you could have easily shaved at least 20 minutes off of this movie. Yeah, this has got to be the fourth or fifth time in the past couple months where I'm like, I would look at the running time and go, why is this movie as long as this? We don't even get the reveal that Evanora is, in fact, the real evil witch until halfway through the movie halfway through the movie and then when they're starting to mount like their attack on the emerald city at the end of the film 
I'm like, okay, great. We got like 15, 20 minutes tops. There's a half an hour left in the damn movie. And I'm like, what are we going to do with a half an hour? Like that seems like way more time than we need to wrap this up. And, and, and dear listener, it was because we have like a 10 minute epilogue at the end of this movie. Yeah. Which we'll get to that in a second, but I want to talk about like how quick the end of the movie goes, at least the climax, not really like the, the epilogue. The climax seems to go really fast. Like that last, like cool sort of witch fight. Of all the things to rush, that's the thing we're going to rush in this movie. Yeah, you're going to you're going to rush a really cool witch fight. You take everything else like at a at a you know, everything it's trucking along but like you you stretch it out. Like this movie again, it's 2 hours and 10 minutes. It's it's longer than it needs to be. And then the witch fight is over in like 3 minutes. Yeah. But I will say like the the final revelation of his whole plan. Mhm. Uh, I, I thought that was done. This is, and this is what we'll talk about some good things for once. Uh, I thought that was executed. Well, uh, it also I, felt a little rushed for me though. I don't know if you felt the same way, but it, it kinda, felt like they were kind of cramming that in there real quick. Kind of. Yeah, I would say so. But, um, but they do let it breathe a little bit just because, well, I mean, you know, they do the gag where, like, they try to turn it back on and it doesn't work. Yeah. And it, that, you know, that's hilarious. Um, but, like, the fact that they're, like, they're all afraid of everything he's doing because they don't know what fireworks are or they've never seen a moving picture. And right. It's, it's, it's a cool idea. It is. That this charlatan con man has figured out a way to actually appear to be a wizard. But honestly, that's also kind of, we get the impression that's kind of what the wizard was in the books as well. Like he's just this guy who like kind of fell bass backwards into this position of power just because he knew how to do different things that these people had no context for. And they thought it was magic. And that, and that is what I was going to get to about the epilogue. Oh, okay. I really, honestly, I really, it's funny that the movie, the movie they don't have the rights to, the movie that they're legally distinct from, mm-hmm. that epilogue makes that movie better uh, because of that epilogue scene. Because it shows, because he's giving them gifts, and mm-hmm. like it shows that like he's this, you know, he, he's a charlatan, but like he's a good charlatan now. So right. he's, he's giving these people these things that aren't, they're not anything, but like. He's twisting things and they have them. They have an emotional weight to them based on the experiences, the experiences that they've had together. Yeah. And, and it, and it makes the original movie better. And I don't know if that was their intention. Probably not. Cause again, like how do you make a, a, a cinematic masterpiece better? But yeah. Yeah. I mean, it gives, it gives, it, it fleshes out the wizard. Yeah, which, it know. makes him an actual character, which is more than the 39 movie does, to be fair. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, if it fleshes out the, the 39 wizard, mm. which mm-hmm. is what this entire movie was intending to do. Right. But I don't think they meant to do it in that way because it's legally distinct, you see. Sure, sure. Not the same. Right. Similar to, but legally distinct from. Right. Yeah, of course. We don't you want know, to get sued. Le- and, but again, here's the thing. You can still, anyone can make a story set in Oz because the Oz books are public domain now. 
So anyone could take an Oz story and take those characters and do whatever the fuck they want with them. That's the beauty and the magic of the public domain. May it never die. Um, But, and may more, more and more properties fall victim to it. Cause hell yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a reason uh, Night of the Living Dead is in every background of every horror movie. Exactly. Because they don't have to pay for it. Because the producer didn't bother to put the copyright stamp at the beginning of the damn movie. <laughs> yep. Good for him. <laughs> I mean, good for us. Not not sure. so much good for him, but definitely well, good for us. Um, but I mean, but and but therein lies. But that that's the great part, you know, is, is anyone can reimagine these stories. That's why Wicked exists. That's why we've had this kind of resurgence of these stories recently. And that's why we get things like a Robin Hood adaptation every five years or so. Why we get, you know, why people still try to, you know, crack the King Arthur code. These are stories that no one has to pay for. They're just out there and anyone can take them and do whatever the hell they want with them. And it's fine. And no one cares and no one's going to get sued. And the Wizard of Oz has entered that space and that territory. And while that's fucking awesome, uh, it also leads to like some 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 stuff like this, which feels like a hollow cash grab. Yeah, which unfortunately has to be directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, Yeah. And again, like you can see why he likes the story and you can see that he has a vision and that he's having fun directing this movie. Um, like you can tell he's having a great, in fact, I can just picture him like chuckling behind the camera. No, I'm sorry. Not chuckling, cackling behind the camera. Every time Tony Cox smacks Bruce Campbell in the face with that trumpet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I can, yeah. I can practically hear Sam Raimi's just uproarious giggles behind the camera. Every time that happens, like, because I, that's that they're, they've been friends forever. And Sam Raimi loves beating the shit out of Bruce Campbell. was probably a couple shouts of do it again. Yeah, oh, <laughs> Yeah, in, in between like the giggles and the gasps, like one more time. Can we get another take of that, Tony? Can we do that one more time? Bruce, you're doing great. Keep it up. <laughs> Keep it up, buddy. Guaranteed that happened. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Like, I, I can't even imagine how many takes they did of that, uh, because, again, that's that's the shit that Sam Raimi loves. Can I beat the shit out of my buddy, Bruce? Hell yeah, let's do it. You know what I realized, though, is uh, the reason that nobody is doing like just because it's in the public domain. I think the reason nobody's doing any of their own things really is because of the original movie. Nobody wants to step on the legacy of that more so than the books. Well, and again, because that has become so iconic, right? Like that has become the goal. And it's, it's one of those things like, and, and this, this, this was something that occurred to me a lot when I was in, uh, when I was teaching high school and we were like looking for like plays and musicals to do with the kids, the 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 lady who was the director of the program and I loved her and I learned a lot from her but she always wanted to do musicals that were like better as movies like really great movie musicals like perfect mu- movies that are better than the musicals stuff like My Fair Lady and Wizard of Oz and Guys and Dolls and I'm like can we I mean can we do a musical that's not like an already iconic movie that ever that people don't already have like an image in their head of what it's supposed to be like because here's the thing if i wanted to watch that i would just stay home and watch the movie like i have the movie like i've got wizard of oz on my bookshelf i can just pop it in and watch it and it's going to be great like that movie is phenomenal um it's it may be a perfect movie like it's it's so fucking good um but you know then i get to see a bunch of high school kids do something not as good as what i could just watch at home like i mean granted they're you know 
our friends and our children and whatnot. So we're going to see them and support them regardless. But I mean, we could watch them do something that maybe doesn't have quite the the same level of a following um, and be fine. That was always kind of my argument. I always lost those arguments though. And because I feel like that's not the point. And, and you're not wrong. It's not, but at the same time, it's the, the artist in me is frustrated by the fact that, you know, I want to see, I want to try to do something new. I want to just try to do something different, which is again, probably why you do get the adaptations that you do that veer so far left from the original 39 film. So as to make themselves a distinction, like return to Oz, there's no way you confuse that with the 1939 wizard of Oz. It oh. looks completely different. Like even the the like the look of the thing is completely different. Whereas this, I think, has more in common visually with the 39 film, but in terms of like tone and theme, it's doing something very different. Wicked very much the same way, using a lot of the like the visual language and a lot of the recognizable characters and kind of turning them on their heads and kind of changing the way that you look at and perceive them. Um and it's a very rare story that can do that. And I think this story is ultimately less successful in doing that than Wicked ended up being. Like Wicked is kind of the gold standard for that these days. I'm not saying Wicked's like a perfect story or anything, but the way that it kind of changes our perception of the original text, like that's what you want out of a postmodern fairy tale is something that kind of changes the way you read and engage with the original. Um, another example of that, there's a, a Neil Gaiman story called Snow Apple's Glass. Are you familiar with that one? I am not. Uh, basically, Cinder, or I'm sorry, Snow White is a vampire. Uh, you would fucking love it. I'm on board. Say no more. Uh, um, but check out that story. It's it's actually really frightening and kind of incredible. Like, I'm insanely, every time I read it, it's scary and it's disturbing and again, it kind of changes the way you look at the original. Like, and when I say disturbing, I mean um, the prince is a really fucking creepy dude. I'll just say that because I don't want to actually say the thing that he's into on mic. I will tell you after we're done recording. All uh, right, it's fucked up. Um, is all I will say. But like, it makes sense within the context of that story, and it takes an element of that story that seems really fucking weird and makes it make sense in a way that is both terrifying, but also um, like it, it also tracks like it's, it's pretty wild. Um, and again, but, but again, that, that kind of is, is when it turn it takes these very basic ideas and it kind of flips them on their head. Um, and, and this movie doesn't quite get there. And I don't think it's trying to flip anything on its head to be fair, I think it's more playing in the homage territory than anything else, which is, I think, ultimately why it's not really giving me anything new. Yeah, I'll tell you the one thing that I wanted to see more of in this movie is... Flying baboons? It, no, it, it's the line the, the Wicked Witch of the West says about the yellow brick road will uh, run red with the blood of the citizens here or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, this, this is good, the good people of Oz. The good people of Oz, yes. Take that line blow it up into this movie like can i just get that energy in the rest of this movie and i'm on board here's the problem with that brett is it rated pg it's rated pg and it's a disney movie and it's a disney movie look i get that but like i, I know that's not what this movie was ever going to be but right. like maybe but don't that line was just like a little like tease it's a, it's a throwaway 
it's a throwaway, yeah, but it's a like it's it's a throwaway that made me want to see a completely different movie where that's like the aesthetic. And here's the thing: would I want Sam Raimi to direct that movie? Hell yeah, I would. Oh hell yeah, hell's to the yeah. Uh, and and yeah, that would be a movie I think Sam Raimi would absolutely kill. Is that a movie he wants to make? And probably not. But like, I would love to see it. Like, I think he'd do it well. I think he'd be great at it. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, that's the, I, I think this movie falls flat for all those reasons. Like, it's not it, it it's playing homage. It's not really giving me anything I haven't already seen before. Although I do like the origin story for the Cowardly Lion. That's pretty fun. I, yeah, I dig that. It, it's a little thing. There's there's little things in this movie that I can go. That's neat. Mm-hmm. Or I like that. But it, I love the fact that China Doll just happens to be carrying a knife. Yeah, because she's made out of China. She has to protect herself somehow. <laughs> just starts waving <laughs> that knife around. I'm like, fuck, girl, get it. And like, she's she's so bad when he takes it away. I know. <laughs> oh, uh, honestly, China Doll might be my favorite character in this movie. She's she's really good. She's it's, up it's, there. It's a toss up between her, Finley, and Nuck. I love Nuck. Just let Nuck play a fanfare. Damn it! Quit shutting Nuck right. up. Just let him. Right. Just let him play the damn trumpet. That's all he wants to do. And just call him by his name. Come on, for fuck's sake! <laughs> if he if he said my name is Nuck one more time, I was going to throw <laughs> some shit. I gave his catchphrase. <laughs> right, famous catchphrase. My name is insert name here. Wow, what a what a catchphrase! Look, man, I'll get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, I, I I would probably like I'll I'll blow a fanfare now or something. That, that's something I, I could wear on a t-shirt. That'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. I'd, yeah, I'd wear that. Uh, Brett, what else do we have to say about Oz the Great and Powerful from 2013? Honestly, nothing. Uh, I got nothing else to say about this film. Here's what I will say. I was going to be really hella bummed if this was the last movie that Sam Raimi ever made. And thank goodness he's coming back to theaters with a new film because it's been a long time. Sam Raimi, we have missed you. Please don't go away again. No, we love you, Sam. And again, <laughs> over the course of this episode, I forgot that this came out after Drag Me to Hell. <laughs> like, this... It doesn't feel like this movie existed in any sort of time frame that I'm familiar with. And I mean, to to, to kind of track the arc of Raimi here, like he's done, he does these kind of cult movies early in his career, the Evil Dead movies, Crime Wave, like the forgotten Sam Raimi film, Crime Wave, Dark Man, Army of Darkness. And then he comes in with this this quadrilogy of like, quote unquote, grown up movies. I'm going to give me my Oscar because my friends have one. Right. And and honestly, that felt like something that was more thrust on him than something he was like really eager to do himself. I could be wrong on that. But then he he basically because he's kind of a safe choice ends up directing the Spider-Man trilogy, which kind of becomes like the biggest thing for like the the 2000s. And then because of the backlash from spider-man 3 he's like well i'm gonna return to my roots i'm gonna do something everyone loves and i've got all the spider-man cachet at my back so it pretty much that's his blank check is drag me to hell and that gets shit on like people do not get that movie and he's like well fuck i don't know what to do now and it makes sense that he kind of ends up going back to tv kind of plays it safe for a little while and then 
like when when he does get a chance to make a movie again, it's a big blockbuster picture destined to kick off a franchise. Uh, not that he wants anything to do with the franchise of it, but like that's kind of the thing that gets him back. And that ends up blowing up like he goes back. Well, maybe I can do what I did with Spider-Man again, like a big blockbuster thing. And that ends up blowing up in his face. So he's like, well, fuck, I don't know anymore. And so he goes back to writing. He goes back to producing. He like works with his friends. He He's like shepherding guys like Alexander Aja and Fede Alvarez, kind of like shepherding them on their careers, helping them get started and make the movies that they're wanting to make. And then finally, like Scott Derrickson backs out of the Doctor Strange sequel and he's one of the first names on their shortlist. And it's the thing that gets him coming back. And honestly, the reviews have seemed pretty positive so far to the extent that I'm like legitimately excited for a Marvel movie for the first time in like three or four years. Yeah, because it sounds like they let him do whatever he wanted to do, which was kind of his like line in the sand. Like, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it my way. And first of all, good for him. Yeah. And second of all, good for Marvel for letting him do that. Because here's the thing. I think as long as Marvel has their teaser bullshit in there, like they probably had like a handful of things like these are the things we want in there. And Sam's like, can I film it like this? And they're like, yeah, I guess. And he's like, great, I'll do it. That's all we need. We We just need. The stuff that YouTube dudes can point out in Easter egg videos and the rest mm-hmm. of it can be everything Sam wants to do. And yeah, and, and that's just it. Like I and I've said this before, like I love when filmmakers get to make the movies they want to make for good or ill. Like they're not always the best movies. They're not always the movies that I like. Like I don't like Zack Snyder movies, but I like the idea that he got to make the movie he wanted to make. I don't think it's very good, but I'm glad he got to make it. I just wish his fans would shut up. Don't we all? I mean, touche. I know I do, but like, and you know, I, I like that when filmmaker, particularly ones with an artistic vision, I won't say, I wouldn't call Zack Snyder an artist, but like, you know, when a guy like Sam Raimi gets to make the movie he wants to make in the way that he wants to make it, I get jazzed about that. Like, I, I think that's really fucking great. And so I am just so excited that he's back and that he's getting to make an honest to God, Sam Raimi movie again. Like, I'm very excited about that prospect. I'm also very stoked. I will be there Friday night. I will be there hopefully some point this weekend. I haven't gotten tickets yet. I probably should. Yeah, you should probably get on that. Yeah. They're going to sell out fast. Yeah. I can't do it Sunday because that's Mother's Day. Going to be hanging out with my mom and my sister, who is also a mom. Yeah, I don't care so much for that. So you can do it Saturday. I might. might just do. Um. But yeah, so that is, uh, oh no, we, Brett, we're not, gotta do the box office. we're not done, like, we're, man. We're all over the place this episode. This, we're, I mean, it's, we're a mess. It's look, been a hell of a week, you guys. Um, look, this is what happens when we get talking about like some of our favorite stuff. Like mm-hmm. in my case, Sam Raimi and the MCU in Steven's case, just Sam Raimi. I used to love the MCU. I just, there's so much of that damn thing. Um, so, uh, this movie opens at number one. In its opening weekend, Brett, earning $102 million, $102.8 million in its opening weekend. That is insane. Cha-ching. In second place, um, a future episode of this podcast, Jack the Giant Slayer. Maybe not a future episode of this podcast because it is directed by He Who Must Not Be Named. Ooh. Yep. Nope. So we might be skipping that one altogether. In third place, Identity Thief, a movie I saw in theaters, I am embarrassed to say. 
which in its fifth week has grossed uh, $119 million. So in five weeks, it's made almost as much as Oz the Great and Powerful did in its first weekend. Oof. In fourth place, uh, down from three the week before is 21 and Over, a movie I know nothing about. Uh, in fifth place, another movie I know nothing about, Dead Man Down. Uh, and then rounding out our top 10, Snitch, Safe Haven, Escape from Planet Earth, The Silver Linings Playbook, and The Last Exorcism Part 2. So not the best box office I've ever seen. Um, this movie does actually go on to gross $234.8 million in the domestic box office. Uh, and that is based on a $2 million production budget. So it makes over $30 million over its budget, plus another $255.6 million inter- internationally for a total worldwide box office of $490.4 million. Like this movie does very well, which is again why after the first weekend, the studio is like green lighting a sequel. Yes, absolutely. $100 million in the opening weekend. Fuck yes. But then again, for all the reasons we discussed earlier, that doesn't happen. The one thing that we know for sure is that Dorothy would not have been involved. No, but they certainly semi name dropped her at the beginning, though. Yep. You got Annie Gale, who is probably Dorothy's mom, I guess. And again, as I've said, legally distinct. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that is some real hardcore George Lucas shit. Dorothy's mom had a thing for the wizard. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's it, I feel like George Lucas probably like needed to change his pants after he saw that scene. That's the sort of shit he loves. <laughs> uh, him and every Star Wars fan in the world. Um, the Tomatometer score on this is a 57 percent. Uh, The critics consensus, it suffers from some tonal inconsistency and a deflated sense of wonder, but Oz the Great and Powerful still packs enough visual dazzle and clever wit to be entertaining in its own right. Uh, I think that's half right. Um, Oz the Great and Powerful, the meta score is uh, 44 based on mixed or average reviews from 42 critics. And the letterbox score on this one is a 2.5. Brett, out of five stars, how do you rank Oz the Great and Powerful? I'm going to be generous. I'm going to I'm going to match the letterbox score and say 2.5. Whereas I gave it a two. Um, for all the for all the things that I find in, in intriguing about this movie, there's enough that I just don't I'm not entertained, which is for a movie like this kind of a black spot against it. I would agree. I, I don't know. I think I'm I'm giving it an extra half star just for the tiny little things that I thought had potential. Sure. So, yeah. And yeah. yeah, And, you know, is it a good movie? No. Uh, But it but it's still a Sam Raimi movie. Like there is still enough Sam Raimi on this thing that you cannot deny that this movie was made by Sam Raimi. Like you could I'd forgive you if you did not know a simple plan was a Sam Raimi movie because there's maybe two shots in that whole movie that feel like Sam Raimi Um, and everything else is could be made by just like anybody. Like there's not much of his style in there. But like this is this is so much a Sam Raimi movie that it's those parts were the parts that I was engaged with the most when you got those whip pans and those tilted angles and like the the zoom pans and all that. Like, I love all of that. Like, that's so good. The the end, the, the end of the witch fight is just I was I was loving it. Like, Rachel I, Weiss I, as 
possessed Henrietta. Yeah, it's I fantastic. Didn't, cause, mainly because I wasn't expecting it. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was not expecting him to cram some Evil Dead stuff into this movie, but he did it. He did it for him. Yeah. And here's the thing. Both of those witches get away, so they live to fight another day. Are they coming back for the sequel? They would if we were going to get one, but we won't. And one of them would have probably been wearing ruby slippers because those weren't mentioned at all in this movie. Mm, and you nope. got to go, where were they? Well, in the book, it was the, it was silver slippers. Was Is that not is that not right? And I don't remember. Because I'm pretty sure the ruby ones were made. MGM made the ruby ones because they were going to show up better on camera. And I think L. Frank Baum wanted like because he was doing something about like the gold standard and the silver standard, because, again, his books, those books were pretty political, from my understanding. Yeah. So he was doing like some comparison between like economic shit, like. Well, yeah, as, as I mentioned before, yeah, he, he loved to just like, look, if, if you're going to make me write these books, I'm going to cram my politics in them. I think the wizard was modeled after like William Jennings Bryan or something, if I'm not mistaken. That's a good possibility, uh, which I find kind of hilarious. So, yeah, there's I mean, there's there's all sorts of of fun L. Frank bombshit. Uh, the fact that the jacket that they apparently bought for Professor Marvel in the in the 39 film was apparently once owned by L. Frank Baum, or at least that's the rumor. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's a story that people like to tell. You know, there's there's some there's some lore surrounding that. That's pretty fun. Yeah, go check out. Go check it out. But yeah, that is the Oz, the great and powerful episode of the disenfranchised podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, As always, we are so glad that you guys are here. And thank you for letting us just gush about Sam Raimi. But you know what, Brett? We're not done talking about Sam Raimi, not by a long shot. In fact, if you are lucky enough to be one of our patrons uh, and hell, you still could be. Uh, you're going to get a pretty much an entire month of Raimi content. We've got Raimi episodes planned for disenfranchised and for unenfranchised this month. So check those out. Patreon.com slash disenfranchpod. There are two levels you can join at $3 and $5. Both are going to get you some Sam Raimi content this month. Plus you get our Arnold Schwarzenegger content from last month. Plus, you know, all of our back catalogs, our patron only um, commentaries, all sorts of stuff there patreon.com slash disenfranch pod hit us up on email disenfranchpod at gmail.com let us know how we're doing and uh let us know what movies or theme months you'd like to see us cover in the future we are open to suggestions uh you can also find us on all the social medias uh twitter instagram letterboxd and facebook at disenfranch pod and if you don't want to support us financially through Patreon, we would please ask that you head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and write us a nice, juicy five-star rating and review. That goes a long way to helping us find an audience and find listeners just like you. And I think we deserve it. And I think you should help us get there. We'd really appreciate it uh, for Serial. Because you're a cool person that listens to this. Why not get other people, other cool people to listen to this? Other people as cool or maybe slightly less cool than you. Because let's be honest, you're cooler because you found us first. You hipster, you. Um, But yeah, uh, you know, write us that five star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you find your podcast. We really do appreciate it. Thank you guys so much uh, for listening. We appreciate you. I'm your host, Stephen Foxworthy. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Brett, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd at sus underscore warlock. And like we said, that is all we've got for this week. Uh, Join us next week where we cover another movie that failed to get that sweet, sweet franchise gold. 
Uh, but until next time, I'm Stephen Foxworthy, your host for my co-host, Brett Wright, and myself. Until next time, she came down in a bubble, Doug. <laughs>